0: Welcome to the Symphony Podcast, it's Micropod Monday, I'm sitting here with Matthew, Matthew how you doing man? Wonderful, a little chilly back here in in Washington, I'm
1: used to the California sunshine.
0: Yeah, it was sunny until you got back and brought all that that weather, (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what I'm saying, but we got a cool topic today, one that was audience suggested and something that we're going to try and do more of is just pull back the curtains on what we do, what you guys are doing at Shreddables and Shroomy, and be real about some of the struggles and also just the reality of how do you balance your financial situation with trying to build something, especially early in your career when you don't have a lot of finances. So uh, I want to hear a little bit about some of the ups and downs and challenges that you guys have faced and also how you have done a ton of building in your company without a ton of financing. Um, and we talked recently on an episode about sweat equity, investing time rather than money. But frame this one up for us from your perspective. Um, how did you guys even get started? Like, what were some of the early steps? And then we'll kind of talk about today, some of the the mindset things, but also tactical on how you can make this happen.
1: Yeah. Well, if we rewind and take a look at how we started, um, <laughs> we didn't have a lot of money to start with. Like it wasn't one of those things where it was, um, you know, someone just hands us a big check and they say, go for the races. It was something that you have to build incrementally for a very long time. Um, because in order to even unlock any level of investment, you have to show the groundwork that you've put in already. Like no nobody's going to give a blank slate a check, right? You, cause they have to know that their money is going, going towards something. Um, and so for us, it was like, we, we knew that we wanted to go full in on this project. Right. And so we knew that that was where most of our time was going to need to be spent was building shreddables at first, um, and so but also like that there's startup costs that are involved with that so it, it wasn't like we could just do that and then not have any other form of income coming in to be able to a pay our bills but also be pay the business expenses because obviously when you're starting out there's not going to be any profit for like a very long time um and you need to you know build a website get packaging get boxes i mean all types of marketing materials sales sheets all types of different expenses that come up with when you're starting a business and so one thing that we kind of had to realize was that we needed to find things that were going to allow us to pay the bills and not take up all of our time. And so I think that this is one of the most crucial lessons that any young entrepreneur can grasp is, is that concept in general of like finding something that can cover the minimal expenses but allow you to spend all of your time working on whatever that hustle is going to be that you ultimately care about a lot. And so for me... And, and that can be kind of an ego blow sometimes too, right? Because for me, it was like I, I graduated college with a business degree and I was qualified to do, you know, plenty of corporate jobs. I was re- I was going to jump into medical sales because that's what I had a little bit of background in, and that's a that's a pretty affluent profession from a lot of angles. Um, but I also knew that it was going to take up sixty hours of my week, and so it just wasn't going to be feasible for me to be able to do that and try to run a startup on the side, and so and I think that this is a pretty common thing is like people will think that they're above doing certain jobs. They'll be like, Oh, well, I have a college degree. Like, why would I, why would I drive Uber? Or why would I, you know, do this or that? And, and not, I'm not trying to say anything bad about, about those things. Cause that's like one of the, the main things that would be a good thing to do because yeah. you're kind of making your own hours and you're getting a little money and you, and in the meantime, you have all of that driving time to think and to really like put together things in your mind. But all that to say is like find something that is gonna take up a, you know, is not gonna be a nine to five, but can still pay some of your bills. And for me, I was literally selling coupons while we were building Shreddables. Like I found this job through a college buddy of mine who did it in college to literally pay for beer on the weekends. And so he connected me with the boss of that. And it was a company that literally created the coupons that you see on like those booklets that people use at at grocery stores. And so, and then basically kept track of how many are being used at each different location. So I was hand, I was basically like doing management work for her and a little bit of creative work on the coupon side of things, but I was doing it all over the phone and all online. So I would, you know, it was quote unquote a full-time job, but I could really just bang it out in like three, three to four solid hours a day. I would just like go in on it, do it all from my computer, and I could do it, you know, early, early morning hours. So I would have the rest of the day and night to just grind on shreddables and, and make things happen in that realm. And Roddy was doing like some print modeling, like that type of stuff, uh, like commercial shoots and stuff like that to make a little bit of money on the side, which is another thing that like, it doesn't make a ton of money. Uh, I think people glorify, <laughs> glorify that professional a lot. And that's a, that's a difficult one, especially when you're not at the top, especially when you're not at the top, he's, yeah. he's really good at it. And so he was able to get relatively consistent work and, um, And yeah, similar to me, it wasn't taking up all of his time because it's just like a couple shoots a week or whatever it was, whatever it was. And then we would have enough money to kind of keep things going um, and reinvest. Like we weren't at that point, like we had enough money to stay alive But (laughs) there were a handful of our own personal needs that were just ignored for most of that time, just because we knew that every dollar that we made either went towards our living expenses or, or reinvested back into the business to be able to keep continuing progress in that department. And so I think that's something too, that is important to talk about on this episode is that you do need to make sacrifices sometimes, um, And so and that comes back to like your lifestyle throughout all of this. And so and it ultimately helps you decide whether this is important to you or not, because like if something is very important to you and you can see the end goal for what it's going to be and what you want to turn it into, then those day to day decisions and sacrifices in order to get there don't seem like that big of a deal. But if you're tied to, you know, the lifestyle that you're accustomed to and you want to go out to dinner all the time and take trips and, you know, do all whatever you want to do. Like there, you got, you got to make choices somewhere. Right. And so, and I think at, in those beginning stages, it's like, you kind of just got to commit to it and just really be along for the ride and just know that you kind of have to put, put yourself and your own personal needs on the back burner for a little while, like as you're, as you're building towards what you ultimately want to want to create. But it was, a it's tough. Like there's not a lot of money at first and you got to be really smart and frugal with it throughout. And that's something that continues on too, even when you do get a little bit of money, like, I mean, businesses at all levels need to be smart with their money and there's, and a lot of them are dealing with similar problems at different scales too. So there's never enough, there's usually not enough money to do all of the things that you want to be able to do. So you have to make choices, but those choices are, you know, a little smaller at the very beginning.
0: Right before we got recording, you were showing me the the graphics for the Root Strength bottles, or for the canisters of the new product yeah. called Root Strength, which is a beetroot extract pre workout. Mm-hmm. Which I'm excited to try it out. Um, and how much did it cost to you? So you drew up the general design that you wanted on a two dimensional. Mm -hmm. is it in Canva, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're talking tactical today. So it's like, you literally went into Canva, which is something that we've recommended as a resource for all sorts of different creative uh, design type things. And then you went to get a freelancer on Upwork and Mm -hmm. talk to me about just that mindset. First of all, how much did it cost? But also like you're doing something that you're not trained in, in terms of graphic design. And it sounds like there's all these different steps to start a business from creating sales sheets to writing copy to reaching out to people and
1: and if you google any of these things too right like along the journey if you're like oh i need you know professional mock-ups done or i need a website built and you you google that the first like 10 to 20 results are going to be agencies that cost you know thousands of dollars per month to be able to do all the different creative work that you want and like that's just not realistic if you're a startup and so part of the entrepreneur 's uh, journey is finding out ways where you can, you can be more frugal in certain departments and, and not pay someone who's going to be on a yearly salary to do something that you could hire someone across the world to do for thirty dollars on a one-time job. You hired him for 30 bucks for that? Uh, I think it was like thirty, thirty five dollars <laughs> or something like that to do like a <laughs> really really good, a really professionally yeah. done uh, three-dimensional mock-up of yeah, so I, I went into canva. Well, and honestly, it starts even smaller than that. It like literally starts from Roddy or myself sketching in a notebook what we want, like the general concept and idea for the label to look like sketching out a logo and then taking that and going into Canva, which is where you can basically take it a little bit further get some structure to your design and actually get some like graphic elements. Um, and then once you have a solid base, you just go on to Upwork, which is another resource that we've recommended on the show before. That's like so, so, so useful for any entrepreneur. You can find freelancers from all, or, all over the world who will do all types of different jobs, anywhere from website building to graphic design to logo development. To, um, yeah, basically anything that you could think of um, for a lot che- for a lot cheaper than you would get if you tried to do it anywhere else and there's other websites that you could use too I think there's like Fiverr yeah, I use and um, there's a few other ones as well yeah. Um, but yeah so then we took that hired someone on Upwork and ended up getting like a really professionally done 3D mock-up of the new product that we can now plug into our presentations and use for investors um, and that's something that a lot of people would you know the person who would make that 3D mock-up in a lot of companies is someone who's on salary and yeah, it is costing the company a lot of money. So it's like, and that's one example of many that you kind of just, you have to figure out how to be, you have to have that mindset in basically everything that you touch in this entrepreneurial space of like, what is the least amount that I can spend to, to produce the most value or to, to get me where I need to get, or to get like the thing done that I need to get done.
0: Um, And then when do you hit those diminishing marginal returns on your time and energy? Because you could sit there and spend a week trying to draw out the logo for one product and neglect other potentially value building activities. So it's like, how do you do, how do you get a B on the assignment? Right? (laughs) Pretty much. Or like a B plus. Cause uh, you can easily spend double the amount of time to make it an A when chances are down the road, you're gonna redo that logo, that whole thing over again anyways. Mm-hmm. My logo for Adventure Creator Podcast, I threw it together in 15 minutes. I've now used it on like 60 episodes. And yeah. uh, every time I look at it, I'm like, wow, like I built up this thing in my mind before I made that logo of like, oh, it's uh, it's gonna be super hard to develop a logo. I was asking my sister, she has graphic design skills, maybe she can help me, but we never connected on it. So months slipped by. And eventually one day I had a podcast and I was going to put it out. I was like, well, I need a logo for this first podcast and I have I'm not going to, I'm going to do it. Right. So I literally just took a photo of myself, put a title on it. That was my logo. Um, and yeah, the do it yourself mindset I think is super valuable. Yeah.
1: And like, I I kind (laughs) of like how you frame that too. of like, just, just get a B plus on it. Right. Because like with that do it yourself mindset, it's like a lot of times you just have to you have to get things to a certain point that they can be taken over by someone who has a little bit more skills in that department and they can do it easily so basically you need to provide it provide it in almost final form so that somebody who has a uh, has background in that department can like look at that and be like oh this is this is easy to like to take it to that next step instead of giving them like a blank slate and being like hey can you Can you do this whole thing? And like, that's another way to save money too. Because, like, if you can do a little bit of everything and get everything to a certain point where it's easy to be passed along to somebody else who can kind of make it what it needs to be, like, that's a skill that's super important too. And I think it's, I think a lot of people talk themselves out of the importance of that because they don't think that they have the skills to make it. Um, at the level that it needs to be at. Like, that's okay. Like, nobody has, no no individual person has every single skill set that's required to make a company uh, successful, but not even operational, right? So, like, there are things that there's real quality and real value in being able to, um, yeah, like, do a little bit of everything mm-hmm. and then find the right people that can kind of, like, that you can surround yourself with who can take it to the next level. Cause that's another skill of an entrepreneur is making sure that you can, cause if you just put your head down and you're trying to do everything on your own, always that can sometimes create an inability to accept help from others, which is, I think you end up shooting yourself in the foot a lot. And I think an important skill for an entrepreneur, entrepreneur to develop is to find the right group of people who can really turn things into what they need to be and, and really, you know, um, amplify the work that you're doing Um, whereas if you just try to focus and do it all yourself, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be B work all around. (laughs) And that's like, not, that's not something that will ever create longevity. So
0: you're talking mostly from the perspective of entrepreneurship and business, and I've mostly been learning and growing through the lens of like a creator, less focused on building a business, more focused on building a craft. They're very, very similar, but one of the things that creators have to deal with is purchasing gear, cameras, laptops, this recording device that we're talking on. I paid for all this and it costs money and it's not like I wanted to spend that money, but I was willing to put that upfront cost. Um, And I think there's like this fine balance between having the stuff you need to get started and falling into the trap of, oh, I don't have enough gear, so I'm not going to get started. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I think, and this is going to sound crazy, but I actually think having like a big bank account that can buy you everything you need is just going to hold you back because you're going to spend all your time thinking about the gear and thinking about and spending energy on getting your nicer camera lens and less time on the content and the craft. Yeah. When you get started inevitably you're going to be shit at whatever you do. So you have to put in those early times, like literally shooting video on your phone. If you have a decent camera on your phone, you can make video that's better than the highest quality cameras to consumers from 10 years ago. So just realizing that I think there's the reality of this whole finance balancing finances with trying to build something is like you have more than you actually realize just with like no money at all so um yeah that's that's been something that i've seen with creators is just like the importance of investing in yourself but not investing too much doing as much as
1: you can with hmm. as little as possible is i think the name of the game and especially as a creator like photography and specifically like if you can like if you can get by on the cheapest Thing that you can like chances are that you'll do a much better yes you'll do a much better job when you have the ability to use something that's expensive and nice because you've developed the skill yes. and that's ultimately what matters more right is like the actual skill and the eye that you have as a photographer not the like the, the nicer camera certainly helps of course yeah. but like you will be better at using that nicer camera if you've developed the skills in a in a not so ideal way first.
0: Yeah, and if you try and join like bigger productions or bigger companies, what are they gonna do? They're gonna put you in the entry-level role. You're gonna be a PA, you're gonna be a, uh, whatever the the basic roles are, most, and this might be a statistic that's dated, but when I was in college, they said most jobs you won't be client-facing in for seven years. Wow. So if you're someone, you're a young professional, you're hungry, maybe you wanna be an entrepreneur, you wanna excel in your craft, You're going to have to learn how to represent yourself. You're going to learn how to present to clients and speak to people. And you won't get that opportunity for seven years. And I, looking back on it, I used to detail cars in my parents' garage and drive Uber while I was saving up money to buy those first cameras. And I think, looking back on it, the client-facing interactions with my car detail clients honed that skill set of just being professional, looking someone in the eye, also realizing that the work you do and this is going to sound a little bit jaded but the quality of the work you do is less important than how you make the person you're delivering it to feel you can work so hard on a project but if you don't represent that project well like if you do a great job but you show up to the client meeting you're like well yeah we had this issue and you kind of like you aren't confident in yourself it doesn't matter the quality of the work they're going to be like well this person's not confident in themselves so clearly the work's not good or yeah. you can maybe you did make a mistake but you show up and you're confident like the totally. client feels good about it like I, I really learned the the importance of that firsthand. yeah
1: moving with confidence and everything that you do and that's not to say that you should be arrogant ever right but like there's a there's definitely a difference between moving with confidence and respect and and being arrogant and then also like I mean it's kind of interesting I like the point that you just made about uh, how you definitely learned something from that car detailing business and like, you know, someone who uh, that could have gone a lot of different ways. Right. So like you could have been like, ah, this isn't what I want to be doing. I'm getting nothing from this. Like, this is dumb. This is just taking up all my time, but I guess it's paying the bills. But instead it's like, and and maybe it's just in hindsight, but you like, you took something away from that experience that's valuable in your, in your daily life now. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that's really important to remember as you're doing anything like if you're if you need to pick up a side job because you're building towards your purpose like like you don't need to feel reluctant about that like you can you can go head on into that and be like no I'm going to take away something from this that's going to help me like if you shift your perspective to think that that you can gain perspective or insight or ideas about anything from anything like that is such a valuable thing and then you will take things from everything that you experience and and integrate them into your daily life and they will help you. And so, and and that comes back to being intentional about what you're doing. But so I think, and and that also just goes to say, like, don't feel like you're above doing anything. Like just Mm -hmm. do, do what you need to do to get by, to make sure that you can continue on the path that you set out to be on. Like, it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter that your, your aunt or your uncle or your parents or your friends, or telling you that they think it's lame that you're doing whatever, you know, like, who cares? Like, and, and the final reason is that you're building towards something that you're passionate about. And so, like, who, who could ever knock that? Mm. You know what I mean? And, like, that's what's really important. So, like, if you can always answer to yourself, I think that's the only thing that, like, really deeply matters like if you're if you're feeling like you shouldn't be doing something because someone else is telling you that it, that or someone else is skeptical about it then i think that that's never really a good place to make decisions from personally but um yeah and like you another thing that i was doing well before like, right before we started Shredibles, because I knew that I had to make more money. This was right before I got the job selling coupons, but I was I was doing, like, landscaping jobs. I was doing odd jobs all around Hell the man. neighborhood, helping people move out of their house or working in their yard, to like, cutting back hedges and bushes and all types of different stuff. And, and, like, was that glorious work? Like, not necessarily, but I could have had a terrible attitude about it, but instead... I, I looked at it as a positive thing and I used that time while I was out in, outside in nature working with my hands and I could listen to podcasts I could learn I could call Roddy and we could we could ideate about about you know shreddables or any of these other businesses that we wanted to build in the future like there's ways to add value uh, to anything that you're basically involved with. So like, as long as you have that vision of where you're going, it can be plugged into whatever you're doing and you can find value in that. And you can take away skills, you can take away perspectives. Um, and it all ultimately helps, I think. And if you take that mindset, it will help you a lot. I think.
0: What are some of the biggest challenges that you guys faced in this process of growing your brands? Like what were the things that like you weren't maybe able to just do yourself that you did really have to pay for or that took a ton more energy than you expected? Because of course, like it's not as straightforward. I know it took something like eight months to develop that Shreddables recipe. Yeah. And you guys were driving to Vegas every weekend because that's where the kitchen was.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um well, yeah, so that was the first thing was that it was a two man operation, Roddy and I And we're making, you know, a couple thousand bars in like a three or four day period of time, which is just not sustainable, Uh obviously, especially when you take into consideration that there's machinery that can do like a million bars in a day. Right. So it's like (laughs) it's just not even comparable. And especially as we were growing it, like we started to feel more and more like it was kind of getting out of our out of our control to be able to like handle all the production. So that was like one of the first things that we were like, okay, we have to spend a little bit of money and and buy some machinery, but like we couldn't buy it domestic because it was way too freaking expensive. So we had to go overseas and use Alibaba, which is another uh, resource that I would suggest to entrepreneurs. You can basically find anything (laughs) that you would ever need for literally anything. Um, Yeah. Just honestly go get lost in Alibaba for a day. You'll, you'll be surprised, but so we spent money on two machines that ultimately were supposed to work automatically, like electronically, that would basically, like, you you get the, I mean, I don't even know what to, the mixture of what Shreddables is, and one machine, like, flattens it, mm-hmm. so, like, rolls it into one, like, slab, and then you transfer it to the other machine. It, it pushes it through once, cuts it one way, pushes it through again, cuts it the other way, so then you have basically, like, 50... 50 cut bars um, in a matter of like seconds. Right. Whereas when Roddy and I were making those by hand, that took us a long time. Mm-hmm. So we had to spend the money to get those machines from China. And that was like, a, that was a decent chunk of money, like right? Like more yeah, than eventually. what, more than what we had. It made us like uncomfortable financially. I would say, right. I don't even remember exactly how much it was, but like, I don't know. Like we probably spent around like 10 to 20 grand or something like that on these, on these two machines maybe less it was uh-huh. probably closer to like the 10 range uh-huh. um but at that time we had nothing right so like uh-huh. this was that's a lot this was a lot yeah and we get these machines from china and they're in these huge wooden crates and we have to like break them open and there's no instruction manual there's like wires hanging out of the of the both of both machines and like literally no instruction manual and no like insight as to how to plug these things in at all. And so,
0: and you spent all your money, on we it. spent all of our money on it. <laughs> oh my and so, God. and not to
1: mention, these things are like heavy as all get out. And so, we needed to like, and we needed to transfer them from where they got dropped off in front of the building to our kitchen space, which was on like the back corner. So, literally, Roddy and I, like, <laughs> we had to like find these dolly rollers that were around. And like just put all of our strength into like getting one side of it up onto one of the dollies and then like leveraging both of our, like I was literally like on one side of it, like pulling down so that it would like lift the other side up. And then Roddy was like holding the other side up. And then we were like slowly like moving across the whole warehouse to get it into our space. And, uh, and we had to do that twice. So that took us, I mean, that was so fucking hard. It was insane. But then we had to find mechanics because we didn't know how to turn this thing on so we, we hired like an electrician just to come out and take a look at it, try to get it going. Like, literally, he was stumped, had no idea. We had to do this like three different times. Nobody knew. And so we were like, okay, well, now we really have no money because we like spent all of this on the machines and then money that we didn't have hiring electricians and none of them could freaking figure it out. And so and what we ultimately ended up doing with those machines is we used, we used them manually so that we never even got them to work electric electronically like they were supposed to and we would literally push the slab through the roller take it off put it to the next machine push it through one way push it through the other way and then like package all the bars in general but like (laughs) and so you you make it work right because like we didn't really have a choice at that point and it's not you know there's no refund on those two machines now we could just pack it up and send it back to china and so that was that was the first one where it was like wow that was a huge money hit and we didn't even we kind of like came out the other side without it, it even like working like it was supposed to but uh-huh. but you make it work and then you keep going. And so, you know, that was that's one example. I forget even what the original question
0: Did, was. Just like what the challenges were. I mean, that's a big challenge. Did it end up being a positive overall? Like those machine the purchase of those machines or it,
1: it helped I mean it made it helped us make more than we could before. Like it was definitely a little bit of a help for uh-huh. sure. I mean, not even, it was a big help. Uh-huh. It would have been a much bigger help if they worked like uh-huh. they were supposed to. But I mean, it definitely, it allowed us to make more bars, which was ultimately what we needed at that time. Uh-huh. And so that was good. Um, and then flash forward, so we actually had, we had some really cool success with shredables in a really fast period of time. So we built that from the ground up for like a year and a half. And then a large publicly traded company came in and they showed interest in wanting to basically do like a merger, like a partial acquisition of our brand, and basically get us set up with a corporate backing, um, scalable manufacturing, and essentially just like provide us with all the structure that we would need to be like a a global brand. So this was like a dream come true for us. Cause we're running this like janky operation in Vegas, driving four hours every single week, making a couple thousand bars, coming back, fulfilling all the orders from our apartment. Our apartment was a fucking shit show. It was literally (laughs) like stacked to the brim in every single room with boxes and all this packaging and all types of different stuff. So this company comes in and they say, and we basically, we structure a deal with them over about like three months. It took about three months from beginning to like signing the deal. Um, and they acquired majority percentage of the company, but that gave us, so they, there was like a cash buyout and then they gave us salaries within our own. So basically salaries to continue running the company and then stock options in their company. Um, and then operational funds for the company as well. So literally this was like dream come true. We're set up now. Shredibles is going to go become this huge, like monster of a brand. And so that deal goes through, everything's running smoothly. We take the money from that deal that we made and immediately put it into some of the other ideas that we had for companies that are now very much in the works like Shroomy and, and Root Strength and, and even Symphony. Um, and so, you know, because we learned that lesson of like how to make money work, how to build things. And so this time we turned around and were able to do things a lot more quickly with that money so we start we basically got all these other things off the ground as we had like some security built in through shreddables mm-hmm. in terms of like financial security. But then uh like 10 months go by and the company that bought us hadn't done anything with shreddables and they were they were hard to communicate with. Uh we would send them all the information that they needed and they had, they told us to shut down our operation in Las Vegas because they were going to be able to just pick up operations and do the manufacturing and do it at a much larger scale than we were able to. And so we didn't even think twice about it. We were like, yeah, perfect, let's do it. And so, and then they sit on it, sit on it, sit on it, nothing's happening. We can't talk to the people we need to talk to. They just keep giving us more like mundane paperwork things that they need from us, which we turn around to them immediately in like a a day. And then just like more silence, more silence. And it all just keeps building and building and building. And we just, we're getting paid in the meantime, which is kind of funny. And like, I think, I mean, we were using that money in a, in a good strategic way, but it was just kind (laughs) of, we were just like, why is this happening? (laughs) Like, you wouldn't think that they would pay us if they were just going to do nothing with the brand. Um, and so it finally gets to a point where we were like, okay, they basically ruined all of the momentum that we had going. Um, and now it seems like they don't have the ability to really make this a priority within their company. And so it seems like it's going to be a while until this until Shreddables really gets the chance that we thought that it was going to get at the beginning. And so we decided to take the company back from the company that bought us, um, which was a whole ordeal and took a matter of months. But we ultimately got it back, which was good news, but also kind of frightening news for, for us, because at that point... Now it's like, okay, no more no more checks coming in, no more salary checks. Uh, and now we have not one... So before it was like Shroomy, Root Strength, these other things are like getting off the ground from the money that was coming in from Shreddables, right? And our salaries and, and whatnot. And now it's like we have three startups back in our lap. So now it's like back to ground zero plus two other brands, <laughs> which was a little bit overwhelming at, at the get-go but i mean you know our past experience of building shredables the first time kind of gave us a better toolkit to be able to to deal with that situation but i mean that's that kind of went from you know getting a taste of w- what a little bit of money feels like back to and like and kind of like living in that way for a solid amount of time like a solid year plus and then basically having to go all the way back to ground zero and live broke all over again and be frugal and grind and, and, you know, do all the same things basically all over again. And that makes relationships complicated. That makes, you know, your own perspective of your life complicated because you started off on this trajectory and then all of a sudden you feel like you're kind of having to, to um, trace back a little bit you know and so that was that was a very interesting period of life too um but then also it's like that's what you sign up for as an entrepreneur so you kind of just have to roll with the roll with the punches and and take what you can get and, and keep moving forward and and i think that's an important message too is just like if you have the ultimate goal for what you're trying to build like any roadblock or any any of these little bumps or like what seems like they could be like the stopping point of what you're trying to do. Like, it's almost, it's almost laughable. If you know where you're going, you're just like, well, why would I, I'm not quitting, right? Like I'm not, <laughs> there's like, quitting is not really an option yeah. here. So it's like, how do we, how do we continue to move forward? How do we innovate? How do we um, be more flexible with our approach? And cause I mean, that's ultimately what really matters is like your ability to just keep moving forward no matter what. And so, and there's a certain piece of that that requires you to have an open mind and have a flexible mind because if you're so gung ho about the way that you think that things are supposed to go, then it's going to feel like a lot bigger of a hit when things don't go your way. Mm -hmm. And so, I think you know, being flexible and keeping your eyes wide open and being able to kind of adapt to whatever happens is definitely a um, a key skill to to pick up if you're gonna if you want to step into this space.
0: Dude, that's an awesome story, and thank you for sharing it. I think that's the story of this episode. It's like the the reality of the entrepreneurial journey is not glamorous. It's like super up and down. You kind of glossed over like the negative impacts of going from a lifestyle where you don't have to worry about your finances as much back almost yeah. to a place where you're like, man, now I don't have the finance, the same situation that I had. That's like a universal experience for entrepreneurs. One in a million just like hits it from the beginning and is super successful. Um, One thing I want to add to this conversation is around just like taxes, man, like understanding how taxes work. If you realize that, especially as an entrepreneur or a sole proprietor, anything where you are the business in some way. I don't want to get caught for like tax fraud for saying this, but almost (laughs) everything you spend money on is uh, deducted, is deductible. Like if you're a photographer and you're making photographs that you can put on your website and sell, you can write off your gas. You can write off, first of all, your gear, but you almost have to write these things off because as much as the United States is a place that fosters innovation and entrepreneurship, the reality is the tax system doesn't. And it actually favors full-time employees, large corporations over small businesses. So taking every, like if we're talking, talking tactics, taking every deduction possible is super important and understanding what is deductible and what's not, not breaking the law. We're not talking about breaking the law at all. We're talking about following the law, but if you, follow the law in the right way, you can significantly increase your financial situation without making more money. Like if we're going to be super transparent here, my first year out of college, I think I made $35,000. That was, that was actually plenty. Like that was enough. I remember filing the taxes at the end of the year and I was expecting to make like 60 or 70,000. That was kind of my goal and push come to shove. I ended up investing more time and traveling and did not make sixty or seventy thousand, and I asked myself the question of like, what is the value to me of having this experience traveling? I went to Europe for three months that first year, um, and I asked myself, what's the financial value of this growth opportunity? And the answer to that question is, I, I said at least ten thousand dollars, probably more, like twenty or thirty or more thousand yeah. dollars. So if you're able to see experience and learning and growth for the potential benefit that it can give you down the road, it's like you know, the, the idea of compound interest and all these things, the same compound interest idea applies to your learning and your experience in life. Mm-hmm. And you can sell yourself short because early on in life, your time isn't valued in the market as much as you might value it. I valued my time two years ago enough to say I'm willing to p- get paid less because nobody in this world is going to pay me what I think yeah. I'm worth. And I think there's a, there's like a idea that you're going to, you know, get paid a solid amount early on and you can try, but I think you end up doing things you don't want to do more yeah. often than not, especially in photography. You're going to do projects you don't want to do just because it pays. And, Instead, I've spent time podcasting and making films and doing things that make zero dollars. Yeah. Um, but that have brought me in a ton of life and it and and would
1: ultimately make you more hireable if you ever wanted to dip back into anything. Right. So like by doing all of those things, you're developing these skills that like, you could ultimately take back if you were ever like, oh, I got to go. I got to go get a job somewhere like I got to figure you know something else out like those are all things that are you're adding to your own skill set your own personal brand and like another takes us back to like the tax situation of like of write-offs and stuff like that it's like yeah like take take as many legs up as you can get with that because i mean you you are an individual you're not supposed to be funding a business like Mm. business like there's you don't have enough capital to be able to do that i mean like when you look at big top performing companies like the the owners of those companies are not the ones who are like who are providing the cash flow for the company. I like that's just not how it works. So like it's I mean you do have to take you know, you got to take help where you can get it, especially when you're a young entre- entrepreneur as well. And I think for me it was actually a really cool one of the one of the coolest experiences I've had from a financial standpoint. Yeah. Um and kind of like what solidified my my path in terms of like, okay, I, I think I have a decent, a decent grip on what's going on here. So like when I graduated college, the job that I said no to in order to build shreddables well, actually I went traveling first. I went and traveled and was a traveling English Did teacher. Did a full episode on that yeah, one. Yeah. Check in, it out. In, in Guatemala. A so like, and then, but I had the same job offer when I got back from that trip in Guatemala as well. So I ultimately <laughs> said no to it twice. Um, <laughs> and that was, I think the salary on that one was like sixty sixty five. 65, or something like that. Like, I mean, pretty solid, Solid. really solid for an entry level position. Um, And then, but I said, no, built Shreddables, And then, you know, ultimately when we went through the merger, I got offered a much higher salary to work for the company that I created. And that was kind of like a, that was a moment where I was kind of like, oh, okay. Like you can, you can do this. Like you can, Figure out a way to create financial, um, you know, wealth or freedom for yourself by kind of like doing what you think is right and like what you like the project that you're working on. The you know, there's you can you know it like it's happened before and it will continue to happen, and it's going to take sacrifice and it's going to take a lot of time being financially insecure, but ultimately the payoff can be. You know, ten x a hundred x, a thousand x. Like, I mean, so it's like sometimes you have to make those. You have to like sacrifice in the day to day. And this is kind of counterintuitive. This is literally saying the opposite of what we talked about before. Because before we we're like, oh, well, don't always live your life and and say that like, oh, so that in twenty years I'll be like whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's not really what I'm saying here. It's more so just like following your passion, doing those things in the day to day that maybe aren't making you any money in the meantime, because by kind of blazing your own trail and doing those things that are a little bit off the normal path, that's what can ultimately create more monetary freedom and success in the future than a job that might pay you a, like a, a good salary and a, and you get a, a check at the end of every two weeks in the meantime. But you hit a certain limit and you're going to be making that for the rest of your life. Like you're going to be making enough to have to do that for the rest of your life. Basically. Yes. And so that was like, that was a really cool experience for me, but also just like a a piece of insight that was like, okay, this is possible. So how can I continue to do this? And since I know that this is possible, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to quit until that, that I make that happen again, you know? And so I think that's an important thing to, to keep in mind because then it makes you develop that mindset of like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make this thing happen. Like, I don't, I don't care what I have to like, I'll sell coupons again. I'll go work work in the, I'll go do landscaping jobs again. Like I'm not, I, I don't hold myself to like too high of a standard to, to like not do things that are going to be required Mm -hmm. to make the things that I believe in work. And I think that that's, that's crucial if you want to, If you want your idea to to happen.
0: Dude, I want to ask, I know it's a long episode, but I want to ask like what resources or how did you learn to start navigating some of the negotiation stuff? Like when you do want to take your business from this, when I'm talking about like step six, right? It's like you've got something you've, you've built and then you're trying to raise that capital that you need to expand it and scale it. How did you even like negotiate your salary, how do you, or maybe not even how'd you do that, but what are the resources that you learned from in order to take those next steps?
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, friends and family first, honestly, like, I think that that is a good starting place for anybody, just because when you're going, when you are trying to start something and if you're trying to go big and like get a big venture capital check or some huge company to come invest in you, they're going to look at what you have and be like, okay, well, this is essentially valueless without my capital. Uh, so like I should, I should own, you know, 80, 90, hundred percent of this company. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. if you keep, you know, the circle small and you try to raise money from family or if you have, you know, good friends or good, whatever, like it doesn't even, and some people will be like, Oh, don't do business with family or don't do business with friends. Mm-hmm. But like essentially try to find the money first in a way that won't make you have to give up a solid chunk of the company, at least as you're getting going, right? Because there's like there's like a solid a solid bridge amount that can make a huge difference from the get go. That will ultimately like kind of put you in the playing field of being able to um, accept like a larger check, and then ultimately have some negotiation space mm-hmm. when you are having those conversations with like a larger investor. But before that point, like, cause you basically are going to hit a point where you need capital that you can't personally, um, cover, but that it, it's like almost the amount is too small to go to the larger firms and ask for that, if that makes sense. Right. And so that's like that weird middle ground where you kind of just need to be resourceful and look around at your network of, of people and be like, okay, and, you know, offer some type of incentive, too, you know, because you have work, you have working room in that department, too, whether you want to offer them, you know, free product or set up a, a some pay terms so that you can pay them back on interest in however many years. Like, But you're going to get a better deal from somebody that you know and somebody that believes in you um, than you will if you just go take it external from the get go and, and get fucked over from the start and then ultimately build towards something that you're not even owning anymore yeah. um and so that's what we did i mean we raised we got a little bit of money from our family just to kind of cover those like those initial costs of well let's get like let's get packaging let's get boxes let's you know cover the costs of of um you know the website or marketing materials like mm-hmm. stuff like that where it's just like it <clears throat> the expenses add up but it's not Enough to be like, oh, we need to go raise a million dollars, or we need to go raise like a couple million dollars. Like it's, it's like that twenty to twenty five thousand dollars range, that like thirty to forty thousand dollars range, which is still a substantial amount of money, and you can do a lot with that, especially if you're used to building a company off of nothing, which you probably are if you've gotten to this point, right? And so, yeah, I would say like utilize your personal network first um and then start kind of like branching outwards once you once you build on that a little
0: bit. I love it, man. This is super um insightful stuff for me even. So, thanks for sharing all this uh behind the curtains lessons of the realities of the financial side of of building a business. It's going to keep going, so <laughs> it's not over. <laughs> it's never over. Yeah, so. and maybe we can share more lessons along the way. I know I've heard the term smart money thrown around mm-hmm. quite a bit because there are people that will invest in your business, but what else are they going to provide you? Are they going to help you? Are they going to just want that money back as soon as possible? Because once you're owned or once your business is owned by someone else, um, you're almost like the puppet, you know, you're, you're, you're responsible to those investors.
1: Well, and if it's coming from, if it's coming from someone who is not in the, In the sector that your business is in, that is going to create a lot of confusion, too, because you want someone that can that can write a check, but also plug you into the space that you need to be in. Right. And so it's like when we're when we're raising money for Shreddables, it's like we want that money coming from someone who has experience building a building like a product company mm. and has distribution channels already set up, like has the resources to be like, okay, here's a check, and now I'm going to introduce you to, you know, uh, the head of accounts for this line of distribution, or I know the buyers at, at these grocery stores, so I'll make the introduction. Like mm-hmm. that is so much different than somebody who writes a check and then is wondering what is going on with that money and has no experience in that field. So they don't know how much things cost. They don't know what goes into really establishing yourself in that space. And so then not only is it, it's going to take you doing a lot more explaining, but then it's also going to take you doing a lot more work because like, because you're, yeah, you just basically want somebody who can give you, give you a leg up and plug you into a network um, that can kind of like expedite your process because money will expedite your process, but ultimately you want, you want money and support and a network to kind of tap into.
0: One final thing that I want to add in because I think it's relevant is how do you actually find those people? It's like, how do you start to build a list of names when you don't even know who these people are? How do you even start? And, um, when we were on the phone with, uh, venture capital managing director here in seattle um he was talking about this idea of like building a venn diagram like an actual visual Mm, mm -hmm. where you start with okay what are the sectors or the industries or the types of people that i want for my business so with shredables it's Um, performance it's nutrition it's plant-based stuff so then you can find people that fall into those categories and then you can find people that have multiple categories in the venn diagram where let's say for shroomy they already understand the mushroom space is a huge growing opportunity if you talk to someone who understands the mushroom space and the potential of adaptogens they're gonna get it versus if you talk to somebody who's like they maybe they want to invest and they might like you but they just they They don't understand. It's not something that they're they're used to talking about or speaking about. Um, So, yeah, I think that's one potential thing, like actually just drawing on a piece of paper or having a Google Doc where you say, okay, what are the categories? And then who falls into those categories? And then what are the messages that we're going to reach out to those people? How are we going to cater our pitch to each person?
1: Absolutely. And like when you're raising money too, it doesn't always, it doesn't need to be a big check from one person, True. right? Like it can be a seed round where, where 10, 20, 30 people are pitching in a couple grand or and some of them are writing bigger checks too, you know? It's like, and sometimes those smaller deals are easier to negotiate too because it's not like they're looking for big chunks of equity if it's just a smaller, if it's a smaller amount of money. But like, I mean, you can work with any amount of money. Yeah. And so- And that's where you got to get creative and think about incentives and and payback options and and all that type of stuff. But there's so many different ways that you can go about it. But I think, yeah, like what you just said is so important. And that's a good way to kind of drive towards finding smart money is like even identifying the categories that your product or your idea fit into. So it just kind of creates a like a filtration system of who you're who you're getting involved with and like and even finding those people, because if you identify the categories, Chances are you could find someone who, you know, is at least a one-off of some of those different categories so you could find introductions that way. But, um, and then also, I mean, we talked about this before we even jumped on here, is just like, what do you have to lose by reaching out to people, right? The worst they can say is no. The worst they can say is no. And I think that hearing no is a very positive thing to get used to, especially if you're trying to build something on your own. So like, get over that by just, shooting it out to people like telling them what you're working on telling them that like because like no one's going to invest in your company if they don't know that you're looking for investment yeah you know and so like and that's another thing that i kind of took away from this process too is like sometimes you can create a softer ask by people or for people by approaching them and being like hey um i'm not necessarily like looking for this from you but and you don't even need to say that. But just yeah. being like, hey, I, I know that you've worked in this space for a really long time. These are the things that we're working on right now. We're in this round of fundraising. I was wondering if there's anyone in your network that you would feel comfortable making an introduction to. Or like anyone that you know of who might be interested in investing in the space. That is a much more valuable ask than, hey, we're doing this. Can you write a check for such and such. Uh And that's also like a softer way to utilize your, your personal network, because there are relationships you need to take into account. And like, you don't want to step on anyone's toes or put them in an awkward position and make them feel like they have to like invest in whatever you're doing. And so I think that's a, that's a good way to gain respect from whoever you're talking to. And ultimately you will probably get a list of names from that person of people who you can go to and form a pitch and you'll be getting a warm introduction from someone that they probably respect as well. So it's kind of a, I, that's a positive approach that's worked for me in the past at least. And I think that that's a a decent way to go about it as well.
0: So true. Well, I just got to add one more thing, which is like, I think it's pretty interesting if you, let's say you're in the music industry and you want to reach out and get 10 minutes of advice from someone who's at the top of their craft, no chance. Yeah. There's thousands and thousands of people that are trying to get to talk to a very select few people who likely are very busy. They get a lot of incoming communication um, and you're just not very likely to actually be able to get time with those people. Whereas in the business world, you can actually get time with people or just even like you can get an email into somebody who is the equivalent of Steve Aoki in the music industry, but they're in consumer product goods or they're in tech. There's yeah. there's tech CEOs or tech execs who don't even have an Instagram following who, mm-hmm. if you drop in their DMs, they've got 500 They'll followers, chances are they're going to see your message. Yeah. So understanding that I think there's, there's just a lot of potential... Um, to stop underselling yourself and to come at people they used to always say to us in college like just ask for an informational interview Yeah, it's not you don't need to convert uh, to a a pitch or an ask it's like just go pick their brain ask them questions focus less on trying to tell them about your thing instead show them that you're curious about what they're doing and if they can recognize that chances are they're going to help you out yeah and build
1: that relationship too And you can, there are things that kind
0: of cross, like what
1: you're talking about right now too. It's like, there's advice that you can get from people who are not in your sector, but like there's, there's, um, similarities across the board in businesses. Right. So like, and this, for example, the coupon business that I was working for as I was selling, as we were building Shreddables, like I, I learned so much from the structure of her business just because she had an operation going that serviced like like 10 different probably more than that like 25 different shopping centers all of which had like 100 stores within them and she was servicing all of them with a team of about like like three people and one like part-time um freelancer and so from her i learned like how how to do that basically like how to stay super lean with your with your business structure and your employee setup and like how to get a lot done with like a very little amount of people and what that looks like and um yeah so like that just goes to say that like you can learn things about your business from someone who who you know is at a higher level in a business that has nothing to do with the category of work that you're in just because there's similarities across the board too. So I think just being a sponge honestly is such a key thing in this whole journey too. And just paying attention, soaking up any advice and information that you can get and ultimately integrating it to your own experience.
0: 56 minute episode. Really? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that this is a fun conversation, like man. Yeah. Um, on a, on a topic that I think is super valuable that I'm trying to learn in and appreciate picking your brain about it, Matthew. Thank you. It's been fun. All right. You can check us out at the as always. We've got, if you go to the YouTube, I'm going to plug the YouTube right now because yeah. we just came out, we got some new intro videos and this specific episode will not be on YouTube because we're here in my apartment complex and the security guard won't let us take our masks off. So we're here talking inside of our masks. If it sounds a little bit (laughs) like that because we're breathing 80% oxygen here instead of (laughs) a hundred. I'm just kidding. So yeah, check us out on YouTube. We've got video episodes. We're going to start putting some of the, the cut down content that we put to social on YouTube as well. We're doing the clubhouse calls and we're also just like looking to collaborate with more entrepreneurs, artists, There's a ton of cool projects going on. Uh, We'd love to hear what you're working on if we can help you out at all. Um, Just like you were talking about, Matthew, in this episode of you're not necessarily pitching the person you're talking to. It's like, hey, come to us as the symphony and we might know somebody between our two networks and the people that are closely connected, the first 10 to 20 people that are in the symphony. We all know 150 people. So chances are just sharing what you're talking about um, whether it's tagging us on social or actually sending us an email, it's going to be a step in the right direction. Maybe going to help you navigate the financial side of this whole thing a little bit easier. Definitely. I, would, I would love to help out. So thanks again, Matthew. We're out of here until next time.